This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am pleased to be joined by Robin Hansen. Professor Hansen teaches economics at George Mason University. And he is the author with Kevin Simler of the recent The Elephant in the Brain, Everyday Motives, or excuse me, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Robin, thanks for joining the show. Great to be here. I look forward. <laughs> All right. So uh, looking at your academic resume, it's quite interesting and varied. You're quite an eclectic thinker. How did you end up in an economics department? Uh, well, I kept leaving. <laughs> uh, that is... Uh, I just pursued intellectual topics for a long time based on my interest in them. And when my interest waned, I would switch topics. Uh, and sometimes that was because I miss it. You know, I thought it was, I realized it was less interesting than I thought other times is because I sort of had a big question and found it was answered sufficiently to my purposes. Uh, I might even say that about philosophy of science. And um, I kept moving to where I thought upon reflection, the more important questions were. And eventually I realized, I needed to find a place in the world. <laughs> it's not just about me and my interest. I needed to find a way that I could, uh, you know, have a place that other people would fund me and, and respect me. And so uh, eventually I decided economics was the best fit there because there were these economics questions I was interested in and you can do a lot of things in college economics. And so uh, economics gives you this broad range of topics you can cover while still, you know, being expert in a particular enough thing. And so that's why I started my PhD program in social science at Caltech at the age of 34 with two kids, age zero and two. So it was a very late return to academia, and I just barely made it work through several sort of lucky breaks. Yeah, I, I actually find that luck factors a lot more in how things turn out than people are often um, willing to admit. When people succeed, they often attribute hard luck, or excuse me, they attribute hard work rather than luck. And when people fail, oftentimes they'll, they'll point to bad luck. And I think oftentimes well, right. luck is a huge component of both success and failure. Right, although at the very first sentence, people are quite happy to attribute things to luck or uh, you know, favor. Uh, if they would like to not seem the bragging. And so the very initial uh, engagement of something, they will attribute it to luck. But uh, then if you push a little farther, then most everything they'll say after the first sentence or two won't be about luck. Right. Be. Well, deep down, it was really about hard work, don't you know? But they also don't want to seem to brag. And so we have norms about uh, bragging. And so, of course, we do brag a lot, but we just you know, make sure we evade the direct appearance of uh, explicitly bragging. Actually, that point is, is a really nice uh, dovetail to the question I was going to ask. So in the history of philosophy, Descartes is, is well known for, for thinking that we know our own minds substantially better than we know the external world. Uh, in fact, Descartes didn't think we knew the external world all that well, at least... Uh, not in the same way we know our minds. Um, except you argue in The Elephant in the Brain that there are these uh, evolutionary reasons, um, that it's actually quite useful for us not to be aware of our true motives. So the example you gave was bragging, right? So I might, I might want to brag without looking like I'm bragging, and maybe even I tell myself that I'm not bragging. So could you expand on that a little bit? What, what, got, what gave you the idea that maybe our motives are hidden from us and for good reason? Well, like almost everyone else, I started out young and naive <laughs> and uh, most of academic fields uh, when they study human behavior, uh, they tend to take people at face value. Uh, so people who study school tend to ask people, why do you go to school? And they say they want to go to learn and they assume that. And why do you go to the doctor? You go to the doctor to get well. And they assume that. Why do you vote to make the country a better place? And so uh, mostly when we're young and naive, we, we hear all these standard stories people give and they are not crazy. They sound plausible and we mostly give them the benefit of the doubt. And so do academics. Academics mostly give uh, these standard stories and explanations benefit of the doubt. And it's mainly with time and experience that you see in your personal life that people's stories about themselves don't often fit with what seems to be your best evidence about them. And in academia, we consistently find that our simple stories about human behavior have a lot of difficulties. So with time, I learned about many of the things that don't fit with their simple stories. I think the first area where that really hit me was in medicine. 
So I, uh, after I got my PhD, I looked for a tenure track professor job, failed to find one, but I did get a two-year postdoc in health policy at UC Berkeley. And then I hung out with sociologists and political scientists and economists, and they have this sort of initial semester training where they take you through lots of classes and tell you lots of things about health and medicine. And um, that was really striking that our, I had just come from a very theoretical program where I knew a lot about the very standard theory of health economics and uh, what assumptions it was based on and that it seemed plausible in theory when you wrote down the models. But then immersing myself in all this detail about health policy, it just didn't fit. Uh, these, these details didn't fit very well at all with all the theory I'd been given. And um, we can go through some of those things that didn't fit if you like, but uh, from once I considered the possibility that people weren't being honest about their motives in medicine, which is sort of what I concluded at the end of that po postdoc, uh, wrote up a position on that topic, I then was open to that hypothesis elsewhere. And then as I came across puzzles and strange things elsewhere in human behavior, I was willing to consider, well, I wonder what happens if people aren't being honest about their motives here. Could that help us explain uh, what's going on? And quite often it does. With respect to healthcare, um, it, I, I was reading your book and it's, it's been a few months since I've read it. I'm a little, I'm a little um, sketchy, but I remember reading it and thinking, it's interesting that uh, more spending doesn't really equal healthier outcomes when it comes to healthcare and that giving people access to cheap or affordable healthcare doesn't seem to improve their health outcomes. Is that one of the things you were alluding to when you were saying? Well, certainly the, the most dramatic and puzzling feature about health and medicine is that there's very little relation between health and medicine. I've taught health economics and uh, a striking thing about most classes in health economics is they're basically medicine economics. Overwhelmingly, they spend a little bit of time maybe talking about other kinds of health, but overwhelmingly they're interested in medicine. Yet when you just look at raw correlations between health and medicine, uh, in various ways, there's almost nothing. You have to struggle real hard to find anything. Uh, now, sometimes you're looking at correlations um, just across regions, say, uh, like counties in the U.S. or hospital areas or nations or things like that, and you're looking for correlation between how much they spend there on medicine and health, and you just basically see no correlation there, even at very fine levels. And then you say, ah, but correlation isn't the key thing. We want a causality. So you say, what about randomized experiments? And we do have some of those, of course, although not as many correlations, but the randomized experiments we have basically find no effect. Uh, probably the most famous one was the Rand Health Insurance Experiment done in the 1970s. They took 5,000 adults and they randomly assigned them to get different levels of subsidy for their medicine from basically nothing or, or just enough so you'll fill out our form so we can get data on you to um, we pay for everything. And looking across the variations there of, of people who got more or less coverage for their medicine, there was basically no health difference. Uh, and we've seen other, there was a more recent ra randomized experiment in Oregon where they had a policy where they randomly decided who got, uh, these were poorer people who got Medicare. And again, no health differences. Um, and so, that's got to really stand out in your mind, like what's going on? Now, uh, you might you come up with some explanations here. One of them might be, well, maybe sort of uh, the extra medicine uh, is not very useful, but maybe the medicine that everybody shares in common, that's great, like vaccines or something like that. Um, and so in, in this randomized experiment, in the RAND experiment, you can look at signatures about the medicine that both groups had in common and the signatures of the extra medicine that some people had. So you can look at severity of diagnosis, how severe a diagnosis was there. And you can look at appropriateness of treatment, that is when other doctors would review a case, how much did they agree with uh, what people had done. And so you might think, well, this extra medicine, it's gonna be less appropriate, it's going to be um, you know, um, less of a severe diagnosis, you're going in for a wart or something and that, that doesn't really matter much. But in fact, these were the same. They had the same severity of diagnosis. They had the same, same uh, you know, uh, agreement on the treatment, which makes it all the more striking, uh, you know, what's going on. Well, I had a follow-up on the, the healthcare stuff. And um, if, 
Suppose we take your, your point, and, and I'm curious about the implications. So if healthcare spending doesn't matter that much for health, then would, um, like, would universal healthcare be a waste? I mean, there's opportunity costs with healthcare spending, right? We could spend it elsewhere. If it's not very effective, right. what's the point? Well, you might actually argue that universal healthcare is really designed to get us to spend less. <laughs> so that might be the argument for universal healthcare, really, although it's not the argument given. So you might say, well, why do people spend money on medicine? And the simplest, obvious explanation is because you look bad if you don't. You look like you don't care if you don't. If you don't give your family medicine, if you don't give your employees medicine, if the country doesn't give its citizens medicine, you look like you're, you're cheap and uncaring. And so... Uh, when you are, have the freedom to spend, you do. You, you spend a lot to show that you care. Uh, now, once we nationalize medical spending, well, now you, as a family member or an employer, you aren't looking like you don't care because you don't spend on medicine because, hey, that's being taken care of by the nation. So now we're cutting out the personal signaling and we are um, putting it at the nation level. And now the question is, will the nation spend too much? But so often nations have limited budgets, and this is a big line item, and they are often pressured to uh, try to cut the budget, in which case you'd say, well, we are finding a clever way to cut our spending on medicine, to prevent ourselves from spending too much. Now, of course, if, if we could get the free government medicine and then just easily add a little bit more privately, this wouldn't work. We would still all take the free government medicine, and then I would still show you I care by buying you extra medicine. But the argument might be once all the doctors are employed by the government, and all the hospitals are run by the government. There's no easy way for you to buy a little extra. Uh, and so you don't. I'm actually puzzled by that explanation. So it seems like what you're saying here is we're spending a lot on healthcare, but the payoff is that you get, you get this signal that you care. It's a signal. It's, it's worth something. There's payoff, social payoff and social capital. But would there be a, a more efficient way to spend money that would be more effective, but also give you that signal? Right. So can I get more, can I get the same signaling bang for my buck, but more efficacy on the policy side? Well, that's a difficult question about signaling in general. So um, we're talking about signaling. So signaling is to review. Uh, you have a hidden characteristic. In this case, it might be how much you care, but in other cases, it might be how you know, much you can put up a school or how conformist you are and conscientious you are and smart about school. Um, you have this hidden characteristic and you'd like people to believe something good about this characteristic. Say there's a range of how smart or conscientious you are or how much you care. And you have a limited range of options with which to convince people that you are high on this estimate here. So the question is, um, how do you convince people? <laughs> now you could just tell them, but of course the temptation, if they would just believe whatever you say is to, uh, you would lie and max out your, I'm, I'm really, really smart and I really, really care. So you have to find a way to credibly signal, to show that you care or that you're smart. And so the a standard story is a costly signal. You do something that's expensive, but cheaper for someone who looks better. And so that means somebody who just doesn't care as much as you or isn't as smart as you, they just, even if they max out their effort, they just can't quite manage to make it cost effective to do what you're doing. So you, you, as a costly signal, you show that you care by spending a lot. Uh, you show that you care about someone at Christmas by not only buying them a nice gift, but thinking carefully about what they might like and showing up and wrapping it in person and spending time. You know, these are all costly signals that convince somebody that you care. And in gener generically in signaling, what you, we have tendency is, is too much. Relative to some social optimum, you do too much signaling because you need to do more than the next guy to show that you are better. And so the question is, is there a better way to deal with it? Now, the social value of signaling depends on whether there's an overall social value to people knowing that you're better. So for example, we could say about employees, what if we didn't allow people to go to school? Just, just forbidden. Now employers will have to make their judgments on people in other ways. And now the people who are especially smart or conscientious, they will not appear so initially, at least because they couldn't go to school to show that. And the people who were very unconscientious or, and, not, and very stupid, they would appear smarter because you couldn't tell that they had failed out of school very early. 
but the question is, so what? So now some people will be overpaid, some people will be, will be underpaid, but is there a net social harm? So the, the net social harm argument would have to come from, well, we need to allocate people to jobs well. It's important for productivity that we find the smartest, hardest working people and we put them on certain sort of jobs and that we find other people and we put them on other jobs. And that would be the social value to weigh against the signal. And then we might ask, okay, is there another more efficient way to signal? Is there another way that would be more effective? So for example, um, people often try to show how smart they are side by, by being a um, clever inventor. Now, you could be an inventor of something useful, or you can be an inventor of something useless. From the point of view of showing off your inventiveness, um, they both work. But if we could switch people to the equilibrium where you invent something useful, now uh, we could all be better off. And so often it's about some sort of equilibrium we're in, in terms of what people count as impressive and what people count as signaling what. So, there are many ways in which we get stuck in an old equilibrium in terms of what we use to signal what. So for example, um, you know, people today on, in social situations, they try to show how smart they are by using big vocabularies. <laughs> they try to show how rich they are by the quality of their food and their uh, cars and places they show up. They, they might try to show how strong they are or healthy they are by drinking a lot and still not falling down or running fast to a next event or, you know, skydiving perhaps with the rest of the gang. Uh, but you know, in principle, we could be using um, bank statements to show how rich you are. We could be using you know, health tests to show how strong you are. We could be using IQ tests to show how smart you are. But go ahead and try to impress your friends with those things and you'll find that that's not appropriate. You're not supposed to be using those things to show off. And so we're more stuck in an equilibrium where we're using these old things to show off because that's acceptable. And so that just shows you that we can be stuck in equilibrium where we're using inefficient signals and that it can be hard to get out of those. Um, I wonder, so I wonder if this applies to charity too. So I found it striking that I remember as an undergrad reading Peter Singer's Famine, Affluence and Morality and thinking a lot about giving more to the poor. And just really being surprised that people will give to charity, but are people who seemingly are motivated to give to charity, who really seem to care, who will give a lot of money, but who don't seem to care that much about how effective it is. Like, are you actually helping poor folks? Uh, and I wonder, like, what, why wouldn't you be more concerned about cost effectiveness? Like, wouldn't that, I suppose, maybe I'm missing the, I'm trying to frame the question here, but it seems to me if, if I was giving lots of money to the poor and I were concerned about cost effectiveness, that that would be a much better signal of actually caring about the poor rather than just so, throwing money at the problem. So let's take an, a, a little detour through Valentine's Day uh, and think of Valentine's Day as a way to show that you care. So there is a tradition, say on Valentine's, of giving someone you care about a box of chocolates. Uh, so now when you give someone a box of chocolates, you don't ask yourself how hungry they are when you decide the size of the box. Uh, you will choose the size of the box appropriately to sort of how much you need to spend to show that you care more than someone who doesn't care as much as you do. Uh, that's what will more set the size. And if you think about quality of the chocolate, what you mainly care about is sort of common perceptions of quality. So if they sort of get a certain common, you know, kind of chocolate from you, if they privately think that isn't such good chocolate, but they have no reason to think you would know that, they'll still give you credit for the gift that you were trying to give the kind of chocolate everybody thinks is good. And now from your end, if you happen to think the kind of chocolate everybody thinks is good isn't so great either, you'll still be pushed to give it because you are trying to get credit for this gift and you don't know that they might agree with you that it's, it's not such good chocolate. And so the key point is with gifts, we're focused on common perceptions of quality. Uh, not so much on private signals about quality. Uh, that's a, a key feature of quality and gifts. Uh, what you care about is this language of I was willing to do this for you. And, you know, what does this count for? And as long as there's a widespread perception that a certain thing is a generous gift and uh, took was, you know, was classy and, and took effort, then people will credit you for that even if they privately think otherwise. So now we can go back to charity, of course. And a charity is, is a gift of helping. But again, you're focused on, well, what do people think 
is the quality of this gift because you're trying to get credit for being generous. So if you happen to privately think something different, but nobody else knows that, then your audience won't give you credit for that. So why bother? If your focus is on getting credit for being generous, you won't be so interested in things your audience doesn't know about uh, what's good or bad. And so as we know with charity, most of the people you're trying to impress, they don't know much either. They hardly even know that you gave to charity, much less which ones or what, you know, what those things do with it. So why bother to learn more than your audience knows? Well, actually, that puzzles me a bit more, actually. So I'm thinking about giving a charity and then checking to see whether or not the charity is cost effective. It actually gets money to people who need it. The reason I bring this up is whenever I teach this topic in class, students will overwhelmingly give as a reason they don't give to charity. They don't know whether or not the money is actually going to end up in the hands of the people who need it. So a big objection to giving to charity in the first place is, I don't know if it'll reach the people. So it seems like this worry is actually right on the surface, right? That the charities just aren't very effective. Well, so this is an excuse. So uh, moving back to elephant in the brain, a key idea is that the big difference between humans and other primates was that we had norms. We had rules about what you were supposed to do and not do. And we had the meta norm that if you saw someone breaking a norm, you were supposed to report them and try to coordinate to uh, discourage them from breaking the norm further. Uh, that is humans and that's how humans are different from other animals. And so that means uh, humans, when they interacted with each other, uh, they were very focused on norms. And in fact, humans interacting with each other was the main environment that matters to them. So they had large groups, they were pretty safe from outside predators. What mainly mattered to humans was the dynamics within the group, not outside the group. So, and within the group, one of the main things that mattered was, are you to blame for violating a norm? And who is to blame for violating norms? Because that's the main way we keep the peace. And so humans were very attentive to asking themselves at any one time, could I be blamed for this? What, what accusation could be made against me and what would my defense be? And so in fact, all the time you're doing most anything, in the back of your mind, there's this little train of thought going, who could accuse me of what with respect to this thing and what, what, how would I defend myself? So much so that this conscious mind that you're proud of, this little running stream of thought in your head, that's its main job. You might think, you know, I am the president or king of my mind. I decide what I do. I, the conscious part of my mind. But in some sense, you're more like the press secretary, a PR person. Your job isn't to make the key decisions. Your job is to watch the key decisions and make sure you have a defense for them all the time. So as you may know, say in the US, the press secretary doesn't actually know why the president makes decisions. But when people ask the press secretary about the president's decisions, the press secretary quickly makes up plausible stories and uh, reasons that they give, and their job is to make it look good. And that's your job as your conscious mind is to make you look good. So we are constantly ready with excuses and defenses for everything we do. That doesn't mean they're the real reasons, but uh, they protect us from accusations. And so, so in this case of, I'm not sure the money is being used well, that is you know, being used as an, as an excuse there, as a defense against an accusation. Uh, and as you can see in this case, it's not actually a motive that's being translated to other contexts uh, where it could be acted on there at more expense. This actually brings me to the topic of self-deception, which I've puzzled over for a long time. It seems like self-deception self -deception is very paradoxical. So if you try to deceive yourself and you fail, that's not self-deception. And if you do try and self-deceive and you succeed, then you genuinely believe whatever it is you're trying to deceive yourself. Uh, I wondered, that, and I had this paradox in the back of my mind when I was reading your book, because it seemed like, at least indirectly or implicitly, this was part of your argument for why it is that evolution has wired us to sort of hide our motives from ourselves. It's not that I have to actively deceive myself. It's that I'm not even aware of my motives to begin with. Is that about right, or am I missing something? Well, so the key thing is you are a big, complicated thing. And you have many parts, and those different parts can all have sort of things like beliefs related to an activity or a thing. So your belief isn't in one spot in your mind. It's spread across your mind and the different parts of your mind may well have conflicting attitudes toward any one topic. So that's just who you are. You are a big complicated thing. Uh, so when you are self-deceiving, what you are doing is that one part of your mind kind of knows something and it's trying to whisper 
so it, there were other parts of the mind don't get too obviously aware so that they aren't messed up by it. So it's, it's not that it's completely unknown to your mind. It's just not known so widely. And even the other parts, they might go, I don't want to hear that and turn away because they go, well, that's not the sort of thing I want to be hearing about. And of course, we do this all the time in our human societies. Any one company or organization uh, may well know many things that many of its members don't. And often some people whisper things to other people and other people say, no, no, I don't want to hear that. Uh, your boss may say, I don't want to hear how you do this as long as this is what I want you to do. And then don't tell me how you do it. Just, just do it. Uh, and then you try to figure out what you can get away with. And so your mind is like that. You have all these different parts. So again, the key thing is to realize this part you're most aware of, this conscious mind part, it's not the top guy in charge. If it were the top guy in charge, then there'd be a different sort of dynamic. You know, why would any other lower down part hide from it other than you know, to give it plausible deniability or something? But then um, you are more the person up here justifying what you're doing, you know, coming up with excuses. But when the rest of your mind realizes that it wants to do something and, you know, your conscious mind being aware of that would just not be a good idea, but then it doesn't tell you. I wonder if I can ask you to speculate a bit. Um, so philosophers of some philosophers of mind and psychologists actually kind of puzzle as to why we are conscious in the first place. There's a lot of things mentally that can go on subconsciously or unconsciously. And I'm curious if your answer here, if, if this is indeed an answer, is, well, we need the, we need the conscious mind to be something like a spokesperson or a sec uh, um, press secretary, sort of give, come up with and give rationalizations for what's going on in the background. Is that one of your answers or is that unrelated? So the word consciousness has multiple associations. Uh, if we focus on this, the least controversial association is that a conscious mind has an integrated perspective. Uh, your a conscious awareness, you can tell an integrated story of what you've been doing lately and why and how that connects with things you did before and connects with your various reasons and connects with the various sources of knowledge. The key distinctive feature about your conscious mind is that degree of integration. Um, and support for storytelling, that, that you can put it together into a story. Not only is it integrated, but it's ready to explain. So that fits very well with the idea that, um, you know, your ancestors basically did things, and other people sometimes pointed fingers at them and say, it looks like you're breaking the rule here. And they had to be ready to defend themselves. So they had to be ready to look at the thing the finger pointed to and see it as a thing that might be an accusation you know, a violation, look at the other things that we're doing and come up with a story that defends them against that accusation. That requires this integrated perspective that you put it all together. Now, in particular, many of the norms we have are regarding motives or have motives as an essential part. So if I hit you accidentally, that's okay. If I hit you on purpose, it's not. The motive makes all the difference. So that's why we're very attentive to our motives with respect to things we do in order to defend ourselves from norm accusations. That's why we will try to come up with a good motive that would explain an otherwise apparently bad action. It seems like having a high IQ would be a great asset with regard to coming up with these rationalizations. I wonder, do you think people are smarter or more susceptible to, to this kind of thing? I mean, I actually think uh, being dumb also has many advantages. So, you know, often what you'll find is that you do one thing in one context and then a different thing in a different context and somebody points out that contradiction. And if you're dumb, you can say, oh, I didn't see that. Just like with your donation, you know, the, the people who on the one hand say, I, I'm not donating because uh, I, I can't, I'm not sure where the money goes. And then on the other can, they do donate, but they don't look at what happens with money. You could point that out and say, it looks like you're inconsistent here. If you're presumed to be smart and are, you must have already noticed that inconsistency, now we figure, well, you're lying. And now we've got a stronger accusation against you. But when you are incredibly you know, dumb enough not to have noticed the contradiction, you can basically get away with a lot more fragmented behavior that's inconsistent, where you just do each thing in each little context for what it makes, how it makes you look there. And you don't notice that it's not fitting very well with choices in other contexts. You've convinced me, Robin. I'd rather be dumb. For the purpose of defending yourself against many kinds of norm violations, it helps to be dumb. But there are other reasons to only seem smart, so it's a trade-off then. Switching gears a bit, 
when I would teach students and tell dad jokes, many of them would laugh. And I used to naively think before I read your book that laughter was really tightly connected with humor or being amused. Well, come to find out, uh, it's rarely the case that people laugh when they think something's funny. I think you give the number of 20%. Most um, laughter isn't about humor. Yeah. Could you expand a bit on that? Sure. So um, there's these puzzles about laughter and then there's our explanation. So laughter is one of our earliest chapters and we give it in order to convince the reader that you in fact are unaware of many of your motives for what you do. And you know, a case one is laughter. You don't know why you laugh. You laugh and you enjoy it and you think it's appropriate and it usually is appropriate, but you don't know why you do it. Now to convince you that you don't know why I have to take the reason you thought you had and convince you that doesn't work and then come up with another reason that does work that you're not aware of that. That's how we do the entire book, each chapter after the initial first third where we introduce the concepts, each of the next 10 chapters does, has the same structure. What you do, your usual theory, your theory is wrong, here's a better theory, but you don't know the better theory, therefore you don't know why you do things. So with laughter, we say, well, your usual story might be that was funny. Now if I pause and say, what does funny mean? You realize that's not a very good explanation. Then we say, well, it's incongruous or it doesn't fit or things like that. But basically, most of these simple explanations, they don't work with the stats in terms of who laughs, how often to what, and things like that. So again, most laughter isn't about um, jokes or humor. Mostly when I sp it's the speaker who laughs more than listeners. Uh, we laugh a lot more when we're around other people than we're by ourselves, uh, by a huge margin. So our, our better explanation for laughter, which we take from literature, it isn't ours, is just that laughter is a we're still playing signal. So animals play, humans play. When you're playing, you might play, fight, play, chase, uh, play all sorts of things. And in the process of playing, there's a risk that someone gets hurt. And if someone gets hurt, you all suddenly pause and ask, are we still playing? Uh, does somebody get hurt? Do we need to switch out of play mode and deal with this? And so while you're playing and you don't get hurt, but some people think you might've gotten hurt, you need a way to say, it's good, we're fine, we're still playing. And laughter is that sort of a signal. It says, we're okay, we're still playing. So now we enjoy laughter, but, and we even like to induce it, but it still has the structure. So for humans, a lot of play is social. We are very social creatures and we have these norms. So a lot of our play is actually playing with social interactions and playing with norm violations. We pretend to insult each other. We pretend to say something politically incorrect. We pretend to do many sorts of social violations. And we play act through those scenarios as just like ordinary play, chasing, fighting is a way to practice and rehearse scenarios that don't happen very often that are important. Play socializing is a way to rehearse scenarios that might happen that are rare but important. And so in play socializing, we often play violating social rules. And so then we laugh to show, you know, say I insult you and then you insult me back and I laugh to show, well, I wasn't really insulted. I get that we're just doing play insults here and I'm okay with that. And you laugh too. And we enjoy that because it's the signal that we are close and we do feel close enough to each other that these things are not threatening our relationship. And they are reaffirming the fact that we have a close relationship by the fact that we can do these things and we're still okay with it. So uh, when we laugh, um, so a dad joke might be to say, uh, you know, I'm a dad. And you know what? Some people don't respect dads that much. And I'm afraid you don't respect me because I'm a dad. And if I tell a dad joke on purpose and then you laugh at my dad joke on purpose and we all seem to be getting along, now I say, you know what? We've all acknowledged that I have this potentially negative feature of being a dad, but we're okay with it. How does uh, nervous laughter fit into this picture? Well, uh, you might want to pretend that you are okay with it when you're not really. So, and of course, this will happen with insults sometimes. So there's a common schoolyard dynamic where someone is insulted by someone who is pretending to do it in a joking way, but it really is a hurtful insult. And then the person that has the choice whether or not to slough it off and pretend like it wasn't a hurtful insult or to act insulted. And that's a difficult choice because, uh, you know, people don't want to appear too sensitive, too weak, or to appear unpopular, uh, et cetera. And so they might be tempted to 
pretend like it didn't bother them, that we're all having good fun here, uh, but they might really be bothered. That means they would have difficulty controlling their laughter and making it be a genuine laughter, which is why laughter is used as a credible signal. That is, if it were easy to fake laughter, it wouldn't actually credibly show that you're comfortable with what people did. And people then strain at, can I effectively fake the laughter? Is that gonna work? And of course, the, you know, the nervous laughter is an unsuccessful attempt to pretend that you're laughing, i.e. that you weren't bothered. It says you are bothered. Uh, switching gears a bit more, many people who are religious, when asked, will claim that they're religious because they believe in God or it makes sense out of the world, gives them purpose. And I'm wondering uh, whether or not people are actually religious for other reasons. You talk about this in the book, and I'm wondering, is it really because they believe in God and they want purpose, or is there something else going on with, with that? So... People use this word believe in various degrees and senses. Um, there are words that come out of their my, my mouth and they say, I believe. But then we want to ask, well, how integrated is this supposed belief with all the other things they say and all the other things they do? And for many kinds of beliefs that people say, we find they aren't very well integrated. Uh, and religion is a prime example of that. We also often see that in politics. That is, the words they say don't seem very connected with all the other things they do. So then we ask, well, what's the point of this thing then? What, what are you doing when you're saying these things? And, excuse me, in most of ancient religions, belief wasn't actually very important. For most ancient religions, it was about what you did, not what you said. And so as long as you did the proper rituals at the proper times in the properly respectful way, you were appropriately religious and you didn't have to have beliefs to go along with that. So, you know, we can say today when we look at what people do when they are religious, and then we can look at what advantages religious gives and try to come up with an account for what religion is doing for people. Again, today people might be tempted to say, well, the reason they did these rituals is that there was this book and it told them to, and they had a belief that the book was right or something like that. But again, that's not very integrated into the other things they do. Like, on other ways they decide what books to believe, for example, what their general policy is toward believing books. Um, but when we look at what people do in religion, we find it's very functional. So um, religious people basically win on all the usual metrics of who wins in society. Uh, they have more money, they are more popular, they are happier, they have more children, they have less crime, they have less drugs, you know, uh, make more money. Again, just all the different ways. So. This idea that, you know, basically religious people who just have some odd beliefs doesn't explain very well all these ways in which they win. And a standard explanation in the literature and social science that we're just copying is that religion functions to a great degree to bond groups together. Uh, religious then ask more of their members in terms of what they eat and what they dress and where they go on what days. Uh, those groups actually rely on each other more. When there's a crisis, they can actually ask more of each other and they will get more out of each other when they need it. Um, and so religion is bonding groups together, somewhat to the exclusion of outsiders, that is they are bonding internally relative to outsiders, they're saying we are together. And then you can see these various things they do as costly signals. They're saying, well, you know, you might wanna to pretend to be with all the groups, but you can't do all the things all the groups ask for and some of them are contradictory. So the fact that you're doing things our group asks means you're with us. And the more of it you do, the more you're showing you're with us. And then it needs to be expensive. So now when you think about, well, what kind of beliefs would be costly signals of being a member of a group? Well, they have to be beliefs that would not be easy to believe if you were not in the group. They have to be kind of crazy at some level. They have to be kind of hard to believe. And so um, the costly signals of your beliefs go along with the costly actions of what you wear and what you eat and what you do, all of which to say, I am with you, we are together, we are there for each other when we need it. And um, that works for us. But of course, you know, it's in, in all these areas, there's this basic question of why don't we know it? So all the motives that I've been giving you for areas of life and what we're doing in medicine and in laughter and in religion and in the other chapters of the book, 
they're all reasonable motives that we might want to admit to sometimes. So the question is, why don't we just know why we're doing these things and admit them? Why ever pretend to the other reasons? That has to be sort of the basic puzzle that underlies all of this stuff. There are all the things we're saying are reasonable things to do, but why don't we know it? You mentioned that uh, religious folks are winners across a number of objective measures. And I'm curious if you think that's, um, I, I forget whether or not you talk about this in the book, but I forget whether or not you think that's, um, is that selection effect or treatment effect or a little bit of both? Uh, certainly both. But I mean, th there is a treatment effect, certainly, in addition to a selection effect. I mean, you know, uh, some people are less inclined to join a religion exactly because they aren't willing to pay the price of showing the signal. I mean, you know, a signal is, is both, um, a signal is directly a selection effect in that whoever is willing to choose the signal shows you their characteristics. But then uh, we might be more willing to invest in associates who um, show, credibly show the signal. That is, there's the first step of showing that you're trustworthy and that you are trying to be committed to this group. And then there's the effect of other people believing that and reacting to it and then building relationships and ties uh, because of the successful signal. Those are direct causal effects. They're not just selection. They are the things that you can do with people once you've selected them. Do you think belief in God has a certain value in what I would call cognitive offloading? So suppose I, I, I'm worried about my job situation. I'm recently unemployed, let's say. And I cope with this by praying about it, which allows me to psychologically sort of bracket it off because the way I framed it, God's God or my higher power, whatever, whatever's in charge of the universe has got it covered. Um, is that, is there some, is there, is that a component of, of sort of the, um, um, the value of religion too, or, or, or what do you think? So let's just back up and talk about explanation of social behavior in general. And the key observation that happens, causes happen at money levels. So our book is focused on what we call more distal explanations, distant explanations, going back to very fundamental causes and asking how they end up resulting in various behaviors. Now, these distal causes only ever, you know, produce the final effect through more proximate causes as well. That is, you uh, do these things because at some level they work to produce the right signals, etc. But then at the moment, just before you do it, there needs to be something in your head that does get you to do it. And that would be a more proximate cause. So these different proximate and distal causes aren't necessarily contradictory. They can just happen at different levels. So we could say, well, there might be a comforting effect of believing in God, but we might ask why there's a comforting effect of believing in God and look more distantly at what could cause you to have a sort of anxiety machine that for which that would be comfortable. We can imagine many kinds of anxiety machines you could have, and uh, some of them wouldn't make that comfortable. <laughs> some of them might terrify you about this God who's way out of your control and you hardly know anything about being in charge of so many things. So um, it has to you know, be part of a package that produces you know, the actual comfort. Um, so the, the fundamental explanation here is you are comforted by this community that has your back. Uh, but you, you know, reify the community in this icon of this person, this agent, and you can focus your comfort there, but uh, behind the scenes, it's really representing this community. And that's a sort of an old trope in social science that you know, God is really representing this community that's, uh, that you're deferring to, that you're giving authority to, you're submitting to, and you're relying on and trusting it. This discussion about uh, religion makes me think of um, an interesting argument from a philosopher, George Ray, who teaches at the University of Maryland. George argues, he defends a position he calls meta-atheism. So his thesis is that people don't actually believe in God, and by people he means most folks who are well-educated, um, scientifically literate. They don't believe in God, but they believe that they believe in God. And he gives a variety of evidence that he thinks for this, like... For example, uh, crying at a funeral, 
So if I believe I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones in heaven, their death isn't really the end. It's rather just uh, a postponement of a relationship, right? It's sort of puzzling that you would be in the depths of despair sure. when you're going to be reunited with your loved ones. Or um, I'll go to the doctor rather than praying to this God. Like he, so he lists a bunch of different things that he thinks sure. indicate that people don't really believe in God. They just well, believe in I mean, again, a more neutral way to say it is you are big and complicated and beliefs can sit in many parts of you without sitting in other parts of you. So there's the part of you at the funeral and there's the part of you doing other things. Uh, you know, the beliefs do are really there in the funeral. There are real beliefs then in some sense, but then in other contexts, they're not really there. And then we're asking about many different beliefs. What are the real beliefs? We might you know, go more back to sort of, well, which affect mo a larger range of behavior or which sort of do you immediately do when you, before you think about it or which affect more the actions you take without saying words and which affect the words you say. And you know, we can make those distinctions. Uh, and then we might say that your real beliefs are the, the ones that influence your actions that you immediately th take before you reconsider uh, that, you know, et cetera. But in some sense, they're just all these different contexts in which different kinds of belief-like things can be influencing. And, but the important thing to realize is you are less coherent and consistent than you think you are. So we tend to assume we are consistent and coherent and uh, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, especially because, you know, if we, if we were to show ourselves to be aware of the inconsistencies and not fixing them, then we are, you know, two-faced. So we don't certainly want to give the intention, impression that we are intentionally two-faced, that we are purposely being inconsistent. And so, you know, that means if we're smart enough, when we notice inconsistencies, we feel somewhat obligated to fix them. It also means we often just don't look for inconsistencies. We'd rather not find them because then we'd be uncomfortably having to do something about them. So I'll admit, I will admit one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk to you after reading your book was to ask you, how has your, your book and the research you uncovered in it, how does that affect your day-to-day -day life and how you interact with others? Does it color your actions or... Do they stay about the same? I'm sure it does, but uh, we don't think our book works very well as a self-help book. And it isn't intended as a self-help book. Of course, people can use it for what they want. Um, our main focus is to say social scientists and policymakers have been making mistakes about human behavior that they should fix if they want to actually be more effective in policy and understanding the human world. So that's our initial stance is to say, look, uh, social science and policy needs to take this into heart if it's going to try to be effective. Now, you can read this and not be a social scientist or policymaker, <laughs> uh, just be interested in the social world. And now this can change how you think about the larger social world. And the question is, how much should it change how you think about yourself? Now, obviously, um, you are one of the other people in the social world, and so your simplest, easiest assumption would be that uh, you are like everybody else. Um, but now you might wonder, well, maybe I'm a little different from other people in some ways, and, and uh, how exactly am I, in which ways am I like other people? And you might especially think, well, I don't want to be like these other people. They look hypocritical and inconsistent. I want, to be, I want to be aware of my motives. So what if I try to reform myself? How well will that go? Can I do that? How will I do that? So you are human and that's a complicated thing and it has this long heritage and you aren't going to be able to change your human nature very much very fast. That's just not a thing that's possible. So you should mostly assume that these things are kind of what you're stuck with and assume you can make modest changes, but not overwhelming changes. You can't, by just force of will, suddenly make yourself, you know, not like all the rest of these humans. The, you could try some and go to some degree, and the question is how, how much is that worth, and how hard will it be? So we as authors say, well, if our focus is on policy and social science, we don't actually have a big payoff from understanding how we personally are different from the average person because that's not going to affect our overall social science or policy recommendations or, or knowledge. So for us, it makes sense to not look too closely at our own personal motives uh, other than to assume we're probably like everybody else. 
And to the extent that we can, you know, we, we, we are trying to use data in order to draw these conclusions. So we'll draw data from our own world. But again, it probably doesn't work to assume that we are better than other people or, you know, less hypocritical, et cetera. We're probably just going to need to um, assume that we're like other people and go with that uh, to the extent that we need to, to try to understand the concrete world around us. Shouldn't this make us at least a little bit skeptical of our motives, whatever they happen to be in the background? Like if you think, sure. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, that's just assuming you're like everyone else. You you should, you should assume that like everyone else, you have a habit of being not entirely honest about your motives and therefore don't be too confident in your first thoughts about your motives. Well, also not just that you, you should be more skeptical about your motives and perhaps the motives of others, but also um, given that people are wired this way and this is sort of human nature to maybe be a little more understanding and charitable with people that people aren't really that familiar with their own motives and they're going to act on bad motives, even they're unaware. So hypocrisy is widely disapproved, even if it's widely practiced. So um, pointing to any one person and saying, you aren't being honest about your motives is an accusation and it's disapproval. And uh, they won't take that kindly, even if it's true. And we aren't recommending you go around and do all those pointing fingers at individual people. I mean, you, you might think of this as a club you can beat against people, but we're not endorsing that usage. You know, they're all similar and, you know, we're not giving you any particular way to find who are the worst people compared to the less worst people. We're just telling you what the overall average is. Uh, you know, because this is a disapproved feature, you might decide, well, now I disapprove of humanity. I no longer like humanity because humanity was good when I thought it was not hypocritical, but now that it's more hypocritical, I don't like humans. We aren't recommending that either. We very much think that humans are where it's at. We, we far more admire and are interested in humans than all the other creatures in the universe. I think they have an interesting, enormous potential and future, and uh, they're the one creatures we like and the creatures we are. So um, this is not a reason to hate humans, uh, especially relative to you, because you're probably no better. How does this make you, how does your work make you more pessimistic about human nature and less pessimistic or, or more optimistic? Well, uh, it means the problems we're trying to solve are harder and more complicated than we thought. But it also means that now we have a better tool that will perhaps let us make more progress than we did in the past when we didn't we misunderstood the problem. So before in social science, the way we saw the generic problem was, you know, how to get people more of what they want, assuming that the thing they say they want is what they want. They want to go to the hospital to get well. They want to go to school to learn things, et cetera. Uh, that was the problem when we social scientists, economists in particular, come up with mechanisms and proposals for how, if we rearranged ourselves in various ways, we could give, get more people more of what they say they want. Now we realized that isn't actually the problem we face. People say they want one thing and really want another thing. So now we have to come up with mechanisms that allow them to continue to pretend to want what they pretend to want while actually giving them more of what they really want, but not forcing them to admit it. Now, that's a harder design problem. It means we'll have to go through more work to figure out how to arrange things to satisfy those new extra constraints. But it means that we also have a better prospect of actually getting things to improve. Because what we've observed in the past with the previous approach of producing innovations and institutional changes that plausibly would get people more of what they say they want is that they shrug their shoulders and they're not interested. They don't want it. They don't care. And we go, but, but, but you said you wanted this and here's how you can get it. Why don't you want it? And this is an explanation for why they don't want what they say they want, which is they've really been wanting something else. So I'm more optimistic now that we could actually make progress coming up with better institutional solutions than we have in the past. That is our failure in the past. It doesn't have to bind us to the future, but the problem is harder than I thought it was. Uh, I need to figure out now how to deal with these constraints. So for example, I've thought a lot for a long time about how to reform academia, what the problems with academia are and how they could, uh, what new institutions could work better. 
it's easier to think of solutions when you think that what people want is just to produce intellectual progress and that's what the goal is and, and we just need to find better mechanisms for that once you realize that intellectual progress isn't actually that high a priority in uh, people involved in academia it becomes a harder problem but now i at least have more hopes that if i work out that harder problem i could actually make progress how might these insights apply to reforming healthcare? I just the broad strokes. Well, again, with healthcare, um, what people want is to show that they care and that they are giving people whatever is seen as the best medicine. So, in fact, nationalizing healthcare in many places does seem to achieve that if people are willing to be deferential to the government about its choice about what counts as needed healthcare. So there is a substantial risk in the United States that if we had the government take over the healthcare system, we would still spend as much as we're spending now and perhaps even more uh, because we would be less deferential than they are in other places like say Europe to their medical experts in just telling us what we need. So as you know, for example, there was terrible outcry about death panels, the idea that there'd be some government agencies that would decide which care was not worth giving. So uh, if you're not going to allow the government to actually limit spending, then it's not going to help to put the government in charge of spending, uh, then they'll just keep spending more. Uh, but you know, more generally, I, I could say about school, I have a sort of better answer to school. So School, we'd say, is about showing that you're smart, conscientious, conformist, that sort of thing, rather than learning the material. And that's why school doesn't seem to actually teach people very much material that's useful that they retain for very long. And you say, well, how could we reform school? Well, one idea I had was to find a thing that you'd like to show off that current schools don't let you show off very well. So say that would be on your feet argumentation and discussion. At the moment, that happens sometimes in classrooms, but mostly we credential and rate and grade people on written assignments. We don't credential and rate them, grade them on, they're just their flexibility in, in, in conversation. Imagine we create a special school program where the whole focus is on flexibility and standing on your feet in conversation. And we find a way to credential the people who are better at that as better through this program. Well, now we could tempt the people who are actually good at that to join this program, and they would actually be interested because what we're offering them is a way to show off the thing that they're, they want to show off. We might still have to pretend we're teaching them things there, but that wouldn't be too hard. But perhaps the main effect would be just be to select and, and rate people as good at that. So again, we'd say what people really want is to be rated as good. That's what they really want out of school. What they pretend to want is to learn things. So if you're going to give them better school, you'll need to find a way to, to better rate them, to give them better ratings, because that, that's what they want. And you'll have to continue to pretend to teach them things because they also want to pretend that. And that would be how you think about reforming school. Are you working on any upcoming projects you'd like to share with us? Anything um, interesting, cutting edge, new? Well, I've been trying to think about my next uh, book and um, I'm tempted to write a book on um, paying for results. And so the idea is that we have all of these experts in our lives that we rely on, other people who take actions on our behalf or who give us advice about our actions, doctors, lawyers, priests, therapists, um, teachers, politicians, regulators, all these you know, building contractors, all these people in our lives. And we are vulnerable to them in the sense that um, if they give us bad advice, then we will have worse outcomes. And a key thing about making a more effective world would be if you could have a more effective relationship to these people, if you could um, get them to work on your behalf rather than their own. So in many of these cases, now what we do is we choose people by prestige. So you don't actually know, say, the track record of your doctor or lawyer. You just know they went to a good school or maybe they're from a prestigious law firm. And so in many of these areas, what people have an incentive to do is to try to gain signs of prestige, but not actually to be effective in helping you with whatever they're supposed to help you with. So my 
hope or proposal is that there are ways to rearrange all of these areas that we could more directly pay for results and then be able to get the results we want without having to go through this intermediary of who's prestigious. We could, for example, buy health, not healthcare, have set up a direct contract where we merge our health and life insurance. And then when bad things happen to us, uh, other people lose money and they decide how much to spend on our medical treatment as a trade-off to uh, making good things happen to us versus the cost. Uh, we can do similar things in law. I have a proposal for how to do that sort of as a way to reform criminal law and with using police, uh, no longer police, but bounty hunters and using what I call vouchers as the people who decide how you are punished and monitored and things like that rather than a bunch of awkward rules. And the common theme here is that we know roughly how we could not have you just rely on prestige and awkward rules that we all collectively make, but the contracts where we more directly pay for results. I've been speaking with Dr. Robin Hansen, professor of economics at George Mason and author with Kevin Simler of The Elephant in the Brain, <clears throat> excuse me, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Robin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.